Hi there. Welcome to our podcast, Paradoxify. I am Anne McFarland, author, screenwriter, and mother of five. I'm here with my co-host and husband, Dr. Tim McFarland. Together, we like to talk about the unexpected. That's right. And specifically, we want to talk with our guest about unexpected stories in STEM and faith. STEM, of course, being an acronym for the words science, technology, engineering, and math. And that's our goal, to deliver the unexpected. Also, in every episode, we will start with a riddle or question, and listeners can try to solve it. We will give them the answer by the end of the episode. Great. Let's get started. Hey, it's great to be back talking about things. I'm here with my hubby, Dr. Tim McFarland, and it's been a while. He's been working in the trenches with COVID. First, I wanted to start with a story, and I'm going to ask everyone listening to think about how it relates to these difficult days we've all experienced in 2020. So I'll give the credit of the story to Aesop. There are 720 fables credited to him, Aesop's fables. Those who believe he was real, and some don't, many do, say that he was a former Greek slave in the late mid-16th century BCE, and his fables are some of the world's best-known collection of morality tales. They were originally told person to person for entertaining each other. A lot of the times it was for relaying or teaching of a moral or a lesson. And many believe that Aesop was a slave, but he was freed because of his literacy and intelligence. The story I'm going to tell you is the story known as the Bulls and the Lion. A lion had been watching three bulls feeding in an open field. He tried to attack them several times, but they kept together and they helped each other to drive him off. The lion had little hope of eating them, for he was no match for the strong three bulls with their sharp horns and hoofs. But he could not keep away from that field. It was hard to resist watching that great meal out there. And he had little chance of getting it, though. But then one day, the bulls had a fight. And when the hungry lion came to lick his chops and watch them, as he did every day, he found they were in separate corners of the field, as far away from one another as they could get. So that's where I'm going to stop the story. It's a short little story. What do you think happened next? And what do you think is the moral of this story? And that's something I'll share with you at the end. So let's get started with our MD science talk. I'm going to ask my husband, Dr. McFarland, what can you tell us about new information that's going on with COVID? Thank you, Anne. And also, to do this talk correctly, I want to thank China, Italy, but particularly New York City. They all stepped up and volunteered to go first in this novel coronavirus. They actually taught us a lot. Now, obviously, science knows a lot about viruses. We've been studying viruses for the past 100 years or so. But 2020 has been remarkable. You told me I have to ask a boring question first. So tell us again, what is the difference between a bacteria and virus? Here at Paradoxify, we don't want to bore you with information that you already know. But you do have to understand the difference between DNA and RNA and the difference between a bacteria and a virus. So DNA is a double strand of protein that tells a cell what to do. Portions of the DNA unzip and one small part of one side of the DNA is copied and released to the cell. That's how the DNA tells the cell what to do. This small protein instruction is called RNA. Bacteria are a whole cell. They have a nucleus and DNA. They replicate. Antibiotics kill the whole cell of the bacteria. Viruses, though, are a protein around a bit of RNA. They inject the RNA into your cell. The RNA hijacks your cells and makes your cells replicate the viruses 100-fold. The multiplied viruses finally cause the cell to die and release the multiplied viruses to repeat the process again. 
If you use an antibiotic to kill the whole cell, you would actually be killing your own cells. That is why treating viral infections are so very different than treating bacterial infections. A brief history, in 1892, Dmitry Ivanovsky made a filter that could filter out bacteria. Bacteria, remember, are larger, they're a whole cell. But a disease-destroying tobacco plants was not filtered out with his filter. He was the first person to hypothesize that something much smaller than bacteria could transmit diseases. In 1935, one of the first electron microscopes allowed us to see a virus. It was not until the 1950s that viruses were defined in modern terms and accepted by the scientific world. Now, currently, why do kids say that a song went viral? They mean that someone liked it, and they told 10 friends who told 10 friends who told 10 friends, and in a week, over 1 million people have listened to this song. So viruses use math to spread fast. Can you explain that a little more? What do you mean when you say they're using math? Well, look at the math. It takes about one week for COVID-19 to spread from one person to someone else and for the second person to become contagious and have the potential to spread it to another person or another generation of infected people. This is called a cycle. The contagious rate is called r ot looks like R0, but it's pronounced r ot And this is how many people become infected from one person with each cycle of time. So if COVID-19 has a seven-day cycle and an r ot of one, then in two months, about eight cycles, you're going to have one person infect one person, who infects one person, who infects one person. You're going to have about eight or nine people that would have the infection. But if the r ot is two, then in two months, instead of one infecting one infecting one, you'd have one infecting two infecting four infecting eight infecting 16. In two months, if the R odd is increased from one to two, you'd now have 256 people with the infection. Listen to this. If the R odd is three, then in two months, you'll have 6,561 people with, infected with the infection. From the one person? From the one person. So the R-aught is, is really critical. Very critical. How contagious is it? How does it spread? How quickly? So if the R-aught is only four in two months or eight cycles, you'll have 65,536 people infected. And two weeks later, over one million people will be infected from the first case. Wow. So you're saying two words, R-aught. And it's looking on our paper as R and a zero after it, R zero, is the contagious rate of an infection. And the difference between an R ought of two and the R ought of four is staggering. 256 people infected in two months from one person is almost insignificant when you think about it compared to more than 65,000. The contagious rate of two seems like something we could survive a lot better than an r of four. Makes that an incredible difference. We've been talking about that. What is the r of COVID-19? What do they think it is? Some studies indicate that many people get COVID-19 and do not infect anyone else. That would be an r of zero. Others have infected over 25 people, but it seems the average r ought of COVID-19 is four, five, or maybe six. Oh, wow. So to beat COVID-19, you do not actually have to stop it completely, but you have to work to slow the spread from one person infecting four or more down to one person infecting one or two. And unfortunately, if you don't understand that significant difference of the math of viral spread, you can end up with a lot of poor concepts that are confusing. And I'd like to explain some of those misunderstandings attempt to straighten out the misinformation as we go along today. Okay, that sounds like a good idea. 
I know we're all kind of tired of it, but this is still stuff that's ongoing and we're still working to slow it down. So you explained that the viruses are particles and their contagion rate, or the, I guess that's the R-aught, is very important. What can you tell us specifically about COVID-19? A brief review of coronaviruses in general show that we basically have about seven family of coronaviruses. And the first four are very common coronaviruses that affect humans. They're basically associated with colds. And I won't bore you to say the exact numbers of them, but there are two alpha coronaviruses and two beta coronaviruses. The other significant human coronaviruses are MERS, and that's abbreviated COV. That's the uh, beta coronavirus that causes Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS. And then the next one is SARS. That's the beta coronavirus that causes severe acute respiratory infection. The last one is the new one, and that's SARS, the COV-2. That's the novel coronavirus, or the new coronavirus, the coronavirus disease 2019, and it's abbreviated COVID-19. So COVID-19 is spread via respiratory droplets. So an infected person coughs or sneezes. They spray small to large droplets into the air, and there may be virus particles inside. And if you inhale those droplets or your fingers touch those droplets and touch close enough to your eyes or nose or mouth, the virus can get inside your respiratory system. The viral dose is the amount of virus particles that you get exposed to. For most respiratory viruses, a small viral dose leads to no infection or a mild infection and then a high viral dose. For example, if I'm going to get shot by a shotgun, I hope it's a poorly aimed shot at 60 feet and I get hit by one BB not a direct shotgun blast from three feet away. That is why certain things work to slow or stop the spread of respiratory viral infections. Anything that decreases your viral dose will help. Okay, so that's where our social distancing comes in. And and, I mean, we've been saying this is helping. Does it? And does the virus really know where six feet is? Social distancing helps. Some viral droplets can travel 20 feet, so perfect social distancing should be 20 feet or more. But studies have shown that social distancing of 6 feet is adequate for most social situations. But don't trust me. Hold a mirror 3 inches from your nose next time you sneeze and repeat the process with the mirror 6 feet away. Obviously, the best social distance is one person per island, but I don't actually own an island. Okay. All right. So, and then the other thing, again, with the masks, there's still a lot of discussion and people want to be done with it. It's it's getting old, really old. And so what about that? Do you really think that's making any difference? Masks help decrease the exposure. Are they less affected if you wear them incorrectly? Sure. That's why I have a Facebook post with tips about how to get the most benefit from your mask, such as don't wear one side out and then later turn it and wear that same side in. Don't touch the front of your mask. And then when you do, which we all do, then use hand sanitizer. If you must scratch your nose, use your little fingers and go under the mask. Dr. Gold gave it a great analogy about mask. Unfortunately, she gave a wrong interpretation of the parable. She talked about the opening size of a mask compared to the virus particles, like trying to stop a mosquito with a chain link fence. If you've heard what I've already told you about the spread of respiratory infections, you can probably tell me what is laughable about using that scenario and then saying it's information or a reason to not wear a mask. You said COVID-19 is spread by a respiratory droplet, and that's not a myth. Right. So COVID-19 is transmitted inside a droplet. So in Gold's analogy, she forgot to mention that the chain link fence is great for stopping mosquito-sized virus particles since most are in a soccer ball or a basketball of snot. She also has you think about a cloth mask as a chain link fence, but a chain link fence is mostly open air. 
But if you look at a cloth, you see that the openings are much smaller than the thickness of the fabric. So it's not really a chain link fence. A cloth mask is like a double thickness of fuzzy rope that has a great affection for trapping droplets. Don't trust me. You can test my theory versus Dr. Gold's. Just place a mirror under your nose next time you have to sneeze. Repeat this with your mask on. When you look at the mirror, which has more droplets on it? With a mask or without a mask? Or try this. Look at the sun. Look at the sun through a cloth mask. When does the sun look brighter? So to stop COVID-19, we do not have to stop it completely. We have to decrease the r from 4 down to 1 or 2. Masks, social distancing, and washing your hands all help. Are masks perfect? No. An N95 gets the name 95 because it filters out 95% of the particle size that it has the hardest time filtering. It's not an N100. When I see patients in the ER or in a hospital room and I know that patient has COVID-19, I wear an N95 and a surgical mask over it. I wear eye protection, plastic gown, gloves, booties. I know for certain that I will be in a small room confined with a lot of COVID particles in it, and they will be at high concentration. But when I go to the store, I wear a cloth mask. I use hand sanitizer as soon as I get back in my vehicle. We're going to finish up on this mask thing, but it's still very important. And we've been talking about both things, the social distancing and the mask. I do know that some people have been really frustrated because their employer has asked them to wear their mask and they've been outside. If you're able to social distance, and I think people are getting a lot more savvy about this idea, even restaurants where they have you dining outside, that you know, there's there's spacing that we can we can avoid that. But if you're in close proximity to someone else having to work beside them, you know, we want to have that mask on. You seem to indicate that by decreasing the transmission rate to one or two instead of four or more, and by decreasing the viral dose to a small amount, I can make a difference. Yes, there's a meme circulating on Facebook negating the benefit of wearing a mask. The emphasis is that wearing a mask four months into a pandemic is like trying to wear a condom to a baby shower. And people forget that COVID is an event that occurs over time. We're still trying to stop the spread. The viral spread of COVID is terrible at one to four, but not as problematic at one to one. And that's the benefit of social distancing and wearing a mask. We're cutting down the ratio of exposure. This is kind of basic again, basic viral information, but if we don't do the basics and don't understand them, we can get into some misunderstandings and confusion. And if we stick to them, we hopefully can continue preventing exposures and reducing this. So can you tell me something current that's going on using these basic principles? The NBA playoffs have been an amazing example of social distancing, mask wearing, testing, and limiting the exposure. Basically, the NBA spent about $200 million to buy an island. By having the players and coaches and staff and the people that have to work in that situation limit their exposure outside of the bubble, wearing masks inside the bubble, limiting the social interactions, the NBA players have almost felt like they're in a semi-prison type of event, but they've had zero cases of COVID inside the bubble. So we know what works. Unfortunately, it's not much fun. We'll talk in a little while about what do you do to the economy that's practical and what can you do that's practical to help decrease the spread of COVID especially with respiratory, is the masks uh, and then the hand washing and the distancing. Uh, we're many months now into this science event. This has been a new event that started at the beginning of our year, uh, been ongoing a little bit before that in 2019. So we're watching this unfold, and I think that's really important to stress with listeners to understand we are in the middle of a science experiment that we didn't ask for. 
Uh, but it's come upon us. It's now with us. The virus is here to stay. Outcomes of it are unfolding. And so what can you tell us now, since we're several months down the road, that's been learned about COVID-19 and some of the updated information and how that's affecting our treatment options for COVID-19? While it's been sad, it's actually been quite exciting to be on the medical end of looking at this infection. We've learned so much. I do want to clarify, there's the concept of FDA approval. The FDA approval is a slow process that science requires. Science requires that a large number of people be looked at with what's called a double-blind approach. There has to be the time to allow other scientists to review or repeat the studies. And we've just not had time to get COVID-19-specific FDA approvals for any treatments except for remdesivir. And technically, remdesivir is not FDA full approved. It has an FDA emergency approval. So let's start with remdesivir. It's an antiviral medication, and it decreases the ability of the virus to replicate. Tamiflu is probably the most famous medicine in this family. It's a pill. You take it twice a day for five days for the flu. It should be started in the first one or two days of getting the flu because after the viral load of the flu increases to a certain amount and you add a medicine to help it not increase more, it's already peaked. And so late addition of medications that decrease the viral replication are not helpful. It has to be started early. And unfortunately, remdesivir is IV only, and it costs a little over $2,000 for its treatment course. So it tends to push that to be given to sicker patients in the hospital, which means that we may be treating them too late to get the best effect. But even with it being started late, it's shown a statistical difference in a fairly large trial that it decreases the days in the hospital from 15 days to 11 days. So that's how it's got its emergency FDA approval. But off FDA, that means not FDA approved, we've also learned that there seems to be other things that decrease viruses' ability to replicate. Some simple things, it includes vitamins, particularly zinc and magnesium. There's a medication called ivermectin, which may also decrease viral replication. It's actually used much more in third world countries than here in the United States now because it treats GI parasites. Physicians in South America noticed that ivermectin seemed to help their COVID-19 patients not get very sick. Things that possibly decrease viral replication should be started early, but often COVID-19 patients are not tested early or it would be inappropriate to treat every asymptomatic patient with $2,000 of IV treatment for five days before they get significant symptoms. But for myself, I'm daily taking a multivitamin, a zinc, a magnesium, and a calcium with vitamin D. Things that decrease the viral replication, and this makes the person that gets infected with COVID-19 not as sick. Right. And yes, of course, that would be true with any viral infection. So now I'm most excited and want to shift gears and talk about specifically how COVID-19 is peculiar and how its uniqueness has started to drive some of the other treatment considerations and recommendations. And this is where I say thank you to New York City. We learned a lot from their early COVID patients. COVID-19 causes a lot of inflammation in the body. Sometimes the inflammatory response of your body to the COVID-19 infection becomes so severe that it starts to actually overwhelm your own body and your own normal and natural health systems. And it starts to do more harm than good. We've started doing lab tests looking for increasing markers in your blood of excessive inflammation. And we started using anti-inflammatory treatments. Pulmacort is an inhaled steroid. It has very little side effects, and I've recommended it for almost every COVID-19 patient very early on if they start having any breathing symptoms. If a patient's symptoms worsen or their lab test shows increasing inflammation, 
We can also add steroids orally in pills or even IV steroids. There's a medicine called cosacine. It's used to decrease the reaction of a person having a gout attack. And to be honest, it works by causing diarrhea, which physically washes the uric acid out of your body. But it also seems to have some anti-inflammatory effect that's helpful in some COVID-19 patients. Basically, you're saying that one of the things they've found now is COVID-19 causes this hyper-inflammatory response from our own immune system. These are things that are anti-inflammatory treatments that can help. So what are some other problems that have come along with COVID-19? COVID-19 causes clotting. Autopsies of patients that have died from COVID-19 often have a lot of clots, and the clots can be anywhere and everywhere. The heart, the liver, the brain, the lungs, the kidneys, and they just have clots and clots. So we started using blood thinners. In the hospital or the emergency room, I'm using blood thinners in injectable form. Blood thinners are also available in a pill form for outpatient use, and I'm using them for one month. These would not be a prophylactic treatment. They would be used for a person who is sick with COVID infection and starting to have significant symptoms. Can you explain that word prophylactic? Prophylactic means I'm taking vitamins, mentioned magnesium and zinc. I'm not sick with COVID. I'm wanting to get them into my system ahead of the infection. That would be prophylactic. So you're saying this is stuff that if you have COVID-19, this is what you would take on these medicines, but you wouldn't be taking them. Your doctor shouldn't be probably prescribing them ahead of the idea that you might get COVID-19. That's correct. Medical treatments tend to be a balance of risk versus benefits. There's very little risk from taking magnesium and zinc, but there is significant risk from taking injectable blood thinners. Risky treatments are going to be safe for those patients who have COVID and are starting to have breathing symptoms, start pulmicord. They're having increasing markers of inflammation increasing. They're getting more ill. Okay, then consider IV steroids and injectable blood thinners. I've been reading that some of them have problems in their airways. Do you want to explain what's happening there? Well, with COVID-19, as with most respiratory viral infections, you can get enough phlegm and moisture in your airways that you can get just a regular bacterial pneumonia. And so a lot of physicians are using azithromycin and a Z-pack, and it's used often for atypical pneumonias. I don't really know if it works against the COVID virus infection directly or if it just helps for those patients who have a secondary pneumonia infection. One other thing that we found that's very strange, and it's called proning. And what that means is to lay face down. And some doctors are recommending that if you have COVID, you start laying face down three hours twice a day. Cystic fibrosis patients have a lot of secretions, and they've used compressions and pounding massage on their chest in different positions, and it helps bring up extra phlegm. And proning seems to work the same way in some of the COVID patients. Okay, and those are people that are in the hospital with COVID. Yeah. They can be at home, but they are just sick. They're having a lot of symptoms of coughing and phlegm production with the COVID infection. Okay, gotcha. Then we're pushing to treat patients at home for longer. We're getting oxygen at home. We're realizing that having people in the hospital decreases their activity and they do poorer than if they're at home for a longer period of time if we can keep them at home instead of just admitting to the hospital to watch to see if they're going to get a little better or a little worse. We'll just tell them to watch themselves at home and give them some suggestions on what to look for that would mean they should return to the emergency room. And that makes sense. I mean, my early nursing days, I do remember that treating patients with respiratory troubles and one of the worst things you can do, I mean, you don't want to overexert yourself and, and collapse from that. But anytime uh, you're sick, if, if you can move around a little bit and keep the, the blood flowing and also keep those secretions, if, you, if it's a respiratory thing, 
Um, when we move, it, it shakes loose inside and, and we're able to cough it up. And that all that kind of does lie in, in sync with what we already know on treating respiratory things. And one other thing that we're doing is we're doing very late intubations. So early on, when a person's oxygen level would decrease, they were getting intubated in a normal fashion. But we found out that a lot of people with COVID-19 don't do well with intubation. No one does well with the prolonged intubation, like one to two weeks. We're doing very late intubation in severe COVID-infected patients, and they seem to do better if they can handle their infection without being intubated. And I think you mentioned that you're sending people home when they're having oxygen at home. Do you have a specific cookbook approach that you're using now with the COVID-19 patients that you're seeing? So I discuss off-label use of treatments of COVID-19 infection, and patients have to agree if they want to take something that we feel is probably helpful, but we don't have the data to document it. And then I start talking about Pomacord, as I've discussed, which is an inhaled steroid, Zithromycin, a Z-Pak, it's an antibiotic, blood thinners such as Eliquist to be taken at home, steroids such as a Medrol dose pack. And these are just things, I mean, you're listing these things off, but you as a physician are um, working, all the physicians are talking to each other, they're sharing information, they're saying, hey, this is working, it seems to be working, but, you know, again, you're working in a field of the, with COVID that's nothing has been proven So uh, you talk with the patient and say, these are some things that might work for your specific situation. And then the patient decides if they want to do that or not. That's correct. Is what you're saying. So that's that's really what you're saying. And there's not a single cure because each uh, patient in each situation has different variables related to how it's affecting them. Right. And so some studies have shown that ivermectin, which I mentioned earlier, can slow the multiplication of the virus. We talked about proning, and I can go over that with patients. Tylenol helps fever. I encourage the multivitamins, zinc, vitamin C, vitamin D, magnesium. And then I discuss with patients that I encourage them to go to the emergency room if they get shorter breaths such that they have problems with getting winded, with walking from the bed to the bathroom. That's just a summary of some of the things that I'd look at. So I'm going to just ask you straight out, Dr. McFarland, do you have the cure or do you know of the cure for COVID-19? I have a sister who's kept me up with all the cures that are available. So I'll just be blunt and say that if Pomacord or Ivermectin were the cure for COVID, then no one would have died from COVID. You look at my list, you'll see I've used those in a lot of my patients, and there's still patients that get very sick and die from COVID. There is no cure. In fact, medical associations may be disciplining doctors who are claiming to have a cure for COVID. And I'll be honest, that's probably the correct thing to do because obviously this is false advertisement on their part. We have done, by working on the things I've discussed, improved in our treatment and our recovery rate from COVID. So it seems like in the United States, the original death rate was 4%. Looks like we're getting that down to about 2%. And some of that improvement may be applying what we've learned in the treatments I just discussed. So give us a a summary about what are some of the high-risk groups. And high-risk means something in relation to COVID. Sure. So the high-risk groups are any group of people that you can identify that are going to have a higher chance of getting more sick with COVID or dying. So obviously the number one risk factor for poor outcome if you get COVID is your age. And it might be slightly more related to your physiological age than simply your chronological age. And I guess I'm going to point out that probably for many, many diseases, getting sick with them, if you're elderly, it's, a, it's harder to fight them off. But So that, that is going to be a risk group. Um, so explain a little more about physiological age. 
Well, your chronological age is how many years old your body is. Your physiological age is how old or young the health is of your body. For example, I have an uncle who is 94 years of age. He drives, he lives independently, he teaches guitar. I know many people who are 10 or 20 years younger chronologically than my uncle, but physiologically, they are much older than him. So it sounds like you're saying that physiological age is the most important predictor of how sick you might get with COVID-19. What else have we learned that might put someone at risk for getting quite sick with COVID-19 infection? I originally assumed that smokers and patients with chronic lung disease would do very poorly with COVID-19 infections, and to some extent they do, but not as severely as I thought. It seems diabetic patients do much worse with COVID-19 infections. And you know, thinking about it, diabetic patients do have a higher risk of what we call vascular problems. The diabetic patients at a higher risk for eye damage, heart attacks, strokes, wounds that heal poorly, kidney damage. And these are all problems that the diabetic patients we know have increased risk problems with. And they also are all common problems due to poor circulation. Remember that I said COVID-19 patients that get very sick tend to have increased chance of clots. So maybe the circulation problems of the body of a person with diabetes makes them at higher risk of clotting and serious side effects and problems from COVID-19. African Americans seem to have a higher risk of severe infection and or death from COVID-19, but it's only a slightly increased risk compared to non-African American patients. Yeah, and I want to underscore to people listening, this is what they're seeing out there in the field in medicine right now. And I mean, the whole timetable is not finished. So we, we, we know that this is what we're seeing for now. So, you know, and a lot of people are irritated. They're saying, well, why are the doctors saying that COVID-19 is the cause of death? People have all these other things going on. This is an important question. Your ability to track COVID-19 death rate is important. Some people are suggesting that underlying diseases are the cause of death, not just the COVID-19. Technically, there's only one cause of death, and that would be no heartbeat. That's true. So we all just die of a no heartbeat. Right. That, that would be the cause of death. Then. So every death certificate could correctly say, no heartbeat as the cause of death. Of course, that would make health research and data impractical. So if I'm texting and driving and run a red light and I'm killed in a car wreck, but someone noticed that the tire treads on my tires were down to four millimeters instead of six, should the police document that the cause of my wreck is that I ran a red light or that my tire treads were at fault? I stated that diabetes increases your chance of poor outcome if you get COVID-19, but your cause of death would still be COVID-19. You had diabetes five years ago, and except for the COVID-19, you would probably have diabetes five years from now. But you contracted COVID-19 and you died. So COVID-19 is correctly listed as your cause of death. Okay. Well, I appreciate you explaining that. And I know it's serious business filling out documents for um, death certificates. And I also know that physicians who would lie on these would have risking their medical license uh, being taken away. So it has been kind of um, frustrating to hear people say, you know, that doctors are, are out there just putting COVID-19 as a cause of death for, for whatever reason. I, I'm sure there's always fraud going on in any area of any walk of life, any occupation, but that's not the way doctors are relating COVID to the death certificates. And let's skip on to something else we've heard a lot about. What about hydroxychloroquine? Hydroxychloroquine is an anti-malarial drug. It treats malaria by killing the parasites that cause the disease. 
It isn't fully understood how this drug works to treat lupus or rheumatoid arthritis. However, it's believed that the drug somehow calms down your immune system. That may be a benefit to a patient with lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, both of which are an over-inflammation of your immune system. So could hydroxychloroquine slow the replication of the COVID-19 virus, like we think maybe ivermectin does? Or could it decrease the hyperinflammatory response of some patients to COVID-19? Possibly. Like remdesivir, early studies indicated it might be helpful, and like remdesivir, hydroxychloroquine got an emergency FDA approval. However, since then, to date, several large studies are showing that it's not statistically helpful. So the emergency FDA approval has been removed for hydroxychloroquine. It's still available, but due to lack of proof of showing statistical benefit, and it has some minor, small potential for negative side effects, it is not being recommended as often as it was earlier. I've heard people wanting to take it proactively, like take it before they even get COVID. I guess you just have to stay on it indefinitely, prevent COVID this week, but get it next week. So it just would be an ongoing course. Well, I mentioned earlier that I'm taking multivitamin, zinc, vitamin C. The side effects of those are quite mild to be taken long term, three months, six months, a year. Medications like hydroxychloroquine would be not very practical to be taken that way. We've gotten a lot of politics involved in COVID-19. How is that happening and what's going on? This has been very disappointing to me. Both conservatives and liberals have made COVID-19 a political nightmare. I'd like to give three examples. I listed above that sometimes we're using colchicine, the gout medication for COVID-19. But I don't use colchicine in the nursing home because it gives diarrhea to many patients. And in the nursing home, the residents often cannot perform their own hygiene. And the nursing staff cannot be cleaning residents if all their nursing home residents are having 15 diarrhea stools a day. You know, and it's not been proven to be effective, but there's been no media condemnation of me using or not using colchicine. Hydroxychloroquine, on the other hand, also has not been proven to be effective. But if I use it, now I have to do an EKG every day. And to be honest, I think that's just media craziness. Every patient who goes into a country with malaria takes hydroxychloroquine. Not one of them gets an EKG every day. Admittedly, it has FDA-documented side effects and it has FDA-approved benefits for treating malaria but no FDA-approved benefits for treating COVID-19. So, in my opinion, mostly one political side is probably overstating the benefits possible to hydroxychloroquine, and the other side is overstating the terrible side effects. Yeah, back and forth, back and forth. Another example is our local newspaper recently had a title and lead paragraph stating that three in-classroom students and one teacher tested positive for COVID-19. The last paragraph said that six online students tested positive for COVID-19. So to be honest, you had to read the whole article to realize you never knew what percentage of students were online versus in classroom. So the article really has no useful information about which is safer, online or in person. It's just a title and then some numbers. And they're all misleading without helpful information. And this is what we have available as news today from our media, in my opinion. And a final example of how we really have to get politics out of COVID-19. The public and the media have to understand how complicated this disease is and treating a new disease is always going to be. We, physicians, are fairly certain that a cytokine storm is probably to blame for some of the serious or life-threatening problems with COVID-19. So I'm going to read the very first paragraph of what a cytokine storm is out of a 10-page summary. Okay, and this is a storm that, that it's named that way, but it's, it has to do with something happening in the body. That's correct. 
So, cytokine and release syndrome is an acute systemic inflammatory syndrome characterized by fever and multi-organ dysfunction that is associated with chimeric antigen receptors, T-cell therapy, therapeutic antibodies, and hapoidentical allogenic transplantation. Immune effector cells associated neurotoxicity syndrome is a neuropsychiatric syndrome that can occur in some patients who are treated with immunotherapy and may or may not be accompanying a cytokine or release syndrome. I'll be honest, maybe the public should just leave medical care to the medical profession and the scientists specializing in healthcare. To be honest, some research is indicating that it might be a bradykinin storm and not a cytokinin storm that's causing some of the problems. Okay. Uh, and my background's in nursing, so I recognize some of those words, but it, it does sound complicated. And, and I know, I know, I know, I know everybody's concerned about this, and we're all wanting to make sure that every, you know, we can find out what's the solution but it sounds to me like you're saying it is complicated. It is here to stay. There are things they're discovering as we go, but we are still in the middle of it. And it is, and it is complicated. And that's why politicians and the media and sound bites need to leave COVID-19 to the medical field and the scientists. Let's talk about the vaccine that studies that are going on. What can you tell us? This is going amazingly well. Phase three trials are already underway. Okay, phase three, that sounds like a scientific thing. What's going on? Well, phase one and phase two trials are trials done with very few candidates to show that a vaccine can cause immunity and has acceptable side effects. But there's not a lot of numbers in there. So phase three trials involves a larger number of people, and it looks for safety particularly. If something causes a serious problem every other person, you'll pick it up in phase one or two trials. But if it only causes a serious problem every 300 people, you have to test 1,000 or 10,000 to start to see a pattern. So it's a safety problem. It has a lot of standards. It should be double-blinded. It should have a control group. In my recollection with nursing, Basically, a vaccine is getting, you're getting a tiny bit of the virus to get it into your system and then let your body uh, react and, and make the antibodies. And that's kind of like herd immunity. You're creating a, an immunity through the vaccine to that. So let's talk about herd immunity. How is it going to affect COVID-19? The natural immunity is if I get COVID-19 infection and I get over it, I make antibodies and I can then fight off the COVID-19. So herd immunity is is the concept that enough people are immune to an infection that it can't replicate fast. So remember, COVID-19 spreads by math. Well, if 99% of people are immune to COVID-19 and a person gets COVID-19, the virus particle that that infected person might spew out when they cough or sneeze could hit 10 people. But almost everyone it hits is already immune, so there's no spread and the disease is over. It doesn't go anywhere. That would be an example of perfect herd immunity. But if 75% of a community is immune, then the spread rate would drop from one to four down to one to one because three out of the four people that it hits are immune. We've already talked about when the R-ot drops from one to four to one to one, how dramatically slow the infection and spread rate is. So herd immunity starts to show moderate effect at 50% and good effect at 75% and great effect if 95% of a population are immune. Now, look at New York. New York has 718 ICU beds available in that state. In the first half of April, they needed 9,000. By July 1st, their need was 300. And now they need about 100 ICU beds for COVID-19 patients. So they had this tremendous spike in the early April. So the first half of April, the state of New York had almost 1,000 deaths every day from COVID-19. But by July 1st, the deaths were down to 30 and are now less than 10. 
Random testing of people in New York show that about 30 to 35 percent of residents there are immune. But it looks like New York has moderate herd immunity. We don't know why. Maybe there's some herd immunity that people just can't get it. They have a previous immune system that will make them unable to contract COVID-19. We're wearing a lot of masks, particularly if you were in New York and you saw so many people dying and getting sick from it. There's social distancing. There's a lot of hand sanitizing going on. So I said in March 2020 that masks, social distancing, hand sanitizing would not stop COVID-19, but it would be an important part of handcuffing this disease. COVID-19 will mostly disappear by January 2022, but can we handcuff it sooner than that? When you look at the death graph, you do not see a peak in New York after July the 4th. Now, remember, death is not the only negative side effect from COVID, but it is an interesting thought that COVID-19 deaths in New York at peak in the first half of April, they've dropped off and they have not respiked. Now, let's look at Texas, my home state. Texas has 2,260 ICU beds available in the state. In the first half of August, we needed nearly 2,560 ICU beds for COVID-19 patients. Now we're down to 1,700 and decreasing. In the first half of August, we had almost 215 deaths every day. Now we're down to 140. Would the vaccine cause herd immunity? Does it help? Yes. Natural infection, with or without symptoms, or vaccine, anything that causes a person to be immune to infection will be helping and contributing to herd immunity. Remember, you do not have to stop COVID-19 to stop it. You only have to drop its spread rate to one-to-one or one-to-two. Math is your enemy, but math can also be your friend. All right. We're going to talk a little bit about the economy. What do you think now differently than what you did in the beginning about the closing of the economy? Well, initially I felt it was obvious and mandatory, but now we have more data. We can now see that New York did terrible in April, but they are done and they've not respiked. While this may initially sound uncaring, but listen to the end of my statement, COVID makes few young, healthy people sick and only has a significant death rate for the elderly or the infirmed. By closing down the economy, you damage the economy for everyone, particularly the people that have little chance of negative health effects from the infection. So maybe we need to work harder to protect the elderly, but does that require you to shut down everything? Remember, I said social distancing helps, but we don't all own an island. We don't all have the NBI to give us special protection and isolation. COVID's going to be bothersome for another year. We can't close the economy for a year, year and a half. I hate to say it, but even Speaker Pelosi will not go a year without getting her hair done. It's just not worth it to her. Remember, when we had a bad flu outbreak in one school, sometimes we'll close that school for a week, disinfect everything. Studies are starting to indicate that nursing home residents are beginning to die from failure to thrive. Listen, they're not dying necessarily of COVID-19. They're dying from loneliness and isolation. You know, I talk to my families considering hospice for their loved ones, for whatever the cause, not just COVID-19. And I always explain to them that there is not a correct decision. There's only a bad decisions that they have to choose from. They have to make a decision and be at peace with that decision. There's no perfect way to treat or respond to COVID-19. We only have bad decisions. So the government has to do what it thinks it needs to do, but maybe not do any more than that. I wear a mask. I social distance. I use hand sanitizer often. We all need to get politics out of our decisions, and everyone needs to do the best that they can. 
I echo that. There's bad choices we have to choose between, and it's a risk versus benefit. My own mother is in a retirement center and going up to her uh, room, sitting outside her window three or four times a week. Her spirits are good, and she's doing well, and she's doing the best that she can with it, but it was not anything that we ever dreamed would be in our uh, life the way it is now. And so at some point, um, we're going to have to let people make decisions. The, the leaders need to make decisions best they can, and the individuals are going to be making decisions. And I think you're right. We've got to get the politics of this out and get practical about things. I'm going to go ahead and tell the ending of the story that I told in the beginning, and this kind of illustrates what we're getting at. In it, I think, is the moral that Aesop was hoping to teach. So this lion was in the field, and uh, when he came that day, the next day, and normally he was just sit there drooling. He couldn't get after the bulls because they stood together. But when he came that day, he found they were no longer standing together, but in separate corners of the field. And he realized his day had come. It was now easy for him to attack the bulls and take them one at a time. And that's the lesson. I think in unity we stand. And in this division, extreme division that's that's going on where we have a potential to fall. And this is with COVID or politics. If we don't eventually and consistently pull together, we become easy pickings for disaster. We need to be thinking about one another and how to protect each other. And I hope this won't happen to our country and our lives and hearts as we face our differences, whether it's foes or viruses or other. We need to stand together and we need to protect each other. The podcast that I do with my wife about science topics, it's found at www.paradoxify.com. Several of those podcasts are about COVID-19. There's some show notes that will be available. And on one of them, what I feel like is a great tracker board of COVID-19. And our podcasts are divided into different topics. And like I said, my, the ones I do with my husband on the medical, uh, we've had some other guests. We also have some other technology guest interviews, and we hope to be doing a wide variety with the STEM subjects. So it'll be great if y'all can join us again soon. Uh, that's www.paradoxify.com, P-A-R-A-D-O-X-I-F-I.com. Thank you for listening. 